Hello, and welcome to the second chapter. I'm your host, Kristen Duffy. This week's guest will be joining me shortly, but first, through the month of January, I'm sharing more 2023 advice and goals from guests who joined me in 2022. Here's Suzanne Maloney, who I spoke with about her medical invention, HydroAir, sharing how she'll celebrate the little wins in 2023. Hi, Kristen. I hope you're well. My main, I suppose, goal for 2023 is to celebrate the little wins more often because throughout the last couple of years during the pandemic, we had a lot of really big milestones achieved, but we were all working from home and we didn't get really to celebrate things like getting listed on the drug tariff in the NHS or one of our patents coming to grant and lots of different really big milestones for me and for the company. And we just emailed each other and said, whoop. So this year, I really want to take the time with my team and and really celebrate all of the milestones that we're going to achieve in the year ahead. There's a few other things on a personal level that I want to do. I really want to focus on spending a bit more time on self-care, I suppose. It's really easy to neglect yourself when you're in the throes of starting your business, but I want to prevent burnout. So I'm going to set aside some time every week just to take care of myself. And and also I want to read more books. So I'm going to try and read one book every month, which doesn't sound like a lot, but I think it actually is for me. I wish you the very best for New Year's. This week, I'm speaking with Joanna Elizabeth. Joe left a career as a midwife to become a photographer now specializing in boudoir photography for women. We speak about her lifetime of empowering women and helping them to feel seen, and how her own diagnosis of autism at 47 is now helping to empower her. It was very quick after we started doing the boudoir that we started to be in the sales room and getting responses from women. People going, oh my God, you can't believe what this done for me. This is how I feel now. And you've made a big difference in my life. And we weren't expecting it. It was just another genre of photography to me. And it just resonated, I guess, as a woman. I was like, oh my God, oh my God. We're actually making an impact here on women. So it just got quite deep, quite quickly. Hi, Joe. Thanks for joining me on the second chapter. How are you today? I'm really good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to have you here. We're recording right after the new year. So what'd you get up to over the festive season? It was quiet. That's pretty much it. We had various dramas going on in different angles. So it was quite nice to have a couple of days, just me and my husband and our kids and a couple of other members of the family on and off, just taking a couple of days out. But yeah, it wasn't hugely restful. A little bit. A couple days quiet is a nice thing, though, in the That'll midst do. of all the madness. <laughs> That's pretty much all I can get these days. I released an episode asking guests from last year what they had for goals of the new year. I'm putting you on the spot. Didn't warn mm. you I was going to ask you this. Yeah, thanks. But that, yeah. no, no worries. Actually, one of my friends asked me in a really interesting way. She said, what will you start? What will you stop? And what will you continue? In I'm you. good. I'm gay. Cool. so what's the first one what would I start yes what will you start this year looking at my work-life balance excellent what will you stop what will I stop Uh, Uh, that's a really good question what will I stop 
I doubt I'm going to stop much at all, really, to be fair. I can't pull one. Can I pull one? What would I stop? I would stop getting so stressed about the small things. Yeah. There's been an awful lot of that in 22. It's been a tough year, really tough year on a personal level. So it's trying, I felt new year with, I'm not a new year, new me kind of person. Yeah, nor am I. I'm I'm a little (laughs) bit in my marketing because we get a lot of women who do approach us in the new year, but for that reason. So I respect it and it works for some people, but for me, it's just another day. But I did feel particularly this year was quite cleansing going into a new year. And I, was, I had that feeling of needing to leave a few things behind as in a bit more of that stress. Yeah, I like that because I'm not a New Year, New Me type either. But I do, like you said, I respect people. And it is a yeah. nice moment to say, okay, maybe I don't want to make a whole lot of resolutions, but what will I start? Or what can I think about? Was, or what can little, I stop? It was a bit like a reset button. It was like, okay, come on, I'm not going to diet. I'm not going to do all of those, get, start going to the gym suddenly. That's, none of that's going to happen. I'm, I'm realistic at the end of the day. I'm <laughs> <laughs> oh, not putting that down. No, 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 no putting down cake for me. But, but yeah, that, that kind of not getting so hung up on the small stuff. Definitely. There's been a lot of that. And what about continuing? Is there something you'll continue for this year? I will continue pushing hard and making it work we've got some really exciting things coming up i'm not gonna i'm not gonna rest on my laurels as they say it's interesting i mean i want to talk to you at the end of the year and see how you've started Mm. with what work-life balance and continued pushing because that's a really interesting (laughs) kind of (laughs) yeah but it's all about balance isn't it okay yeah so i'm giving you that i'm giving you that 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 challenge shall we (laughs) Yeah, I think that's it. I'm going to be your accountability partner. I'm going to put it something in the diary for I, December. It, it does make me wonder if I said exactly the same thing this time last year, though. So I'm not sure. So we talked a lot already about your work-life balance, but I want to go back in time so we can come forward to the present and to the future mm-hmm. of your work. You started out as a taxi driver, which is fascinating to me. How did that happen? Did you get that information wrong? Tell you that. You've been digging. I will not divulge my sources. Oh my God, you've been digging. Yeah, I was a taxi driver for quite a few years, actually. I really enjoyed it. Really fun. I was probably one of the first female taxi drivers in our local city back in the day. Little size six, little blonde thing, busting around in a car, taking cash and meeting people. I really enjoyed it, actually. I was just talking to my daughter about it only on Saturday, actually. I was telling her stories. It was a really good way of getting out your own way and meeting all different people from all different demographics, really, and getting to know people, and especially when you have regulars and stuff like that. I really enjoyed it. Was it something that you just didn't really have a plan, so you fell into it, or was it something that... You're taking me so far back in my world. I'm old now. No. No. I think a friend had a taxi. I think vaguely remember. I I was just in the company of taxi drivers. So it was like, we do that. And I did it as a main source of income. And then I was also doing it to fund my way through university. Okay. So it it also carried on and funded the next step of my career. But yeah, I did. I enjoyed it. I had good fun being a taxi driver. I feel like there's a theme in your life of a friend doing something and you're going, hey, that's a good idea. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) <laughs> Easily led, obviously. Yeah, no, no new ideas for self. <laughs> I obviously grab well, them off other people. 
but that's how you ended up becoming a midwife as well, yes? Yeah, it's exactly the same thing. So I was taxi driving and a friend of mine had the day off and I can remember being at our house, at her house and looking through the news supplement, the jobs, just looking through it, sitting there smoking, drinking, whatever in the middle of the (laughs) afternoon. And she was a nurse. And I said to her, what's a bit wife do? Because I saw the salary, I went, that's not bad. And so she explained roughly what the job entailed. And I just said, I could do that. Maybe I could do that. What do I need to do? So that was when I did the research and um, that late 90s and applied. It took me a couple of years to get in. And funnily enough, a flat that I was renting, the woman who owned it, she was my landlady. She was a midwife. So I remember her helping me with my applications and things like that. Mm -hmm. And then I got onto the course and went off to university to become a midwife. So your current website says that you worked for the NHS for a zillion years. I'm sure it wasn't really a zillion. But I think it was a total of about 15 years all in. So long enough, and it won't be long before I'll have been a photographer for just as long, really. So I think this year will be 15 years since I picked up a camera professionally. That is so funny. That's another thing that I just said the other day. I know I'm getting old because something that I thought happened a month ago was literally this time last year. I was wishing happy birthday to someone. And I looked back and I was like, no, this can't be his birthday already. It was a year Mm. ago. But I feel like I've said on the podcast before as well, but I've been in London now longer than I lived in New York. And to me, Mm. I was always a New Yorker. And all of a sudden it's like, how did I get here? Yeah. For the first time, midwifery is no longer the longest career I've had. So it tips the balance really. Many of the women that I speak with end up finding this sort of creative passion as their sort of second or third or fourth or fifth chapter. And a lot of times it is by accident, but what happened in the midst of being a midwife that, how did you end up picking that camera up professionally for the first time? Well, this is going to sound so far away from being creative. I had, I had my first daughter, she's just turned 16. So I had her and I was off on maternity leave and we started baby swimming classes. And I met a friend of mine who was her teacher. We became friends. And there was something itching in my head, whether it's because I'd had a six month off courtesy of maternity leave and a bit of a reset in my brain. It allowed me a bit of space to go, what else could I do on the side? I just suddenly had this entrepreneurial kind of spark. I wanted to do something. It was almost as if my midwifery career wasn't enough. I don't know why, because I was running a teenage pregnancy service. I was doing some really amazing things within the midwifery career. So for some reason, yeah, I got this itch. First of all, I thought I wanted to get a baby swimming franchise Mm -mm. from with this friend. And we looked at it, we did the numbers, couldn't find any pools. And then I had wanted pregnancy photos with her. And I got a good friend of mine down from London who was a photographer at the time and she came and took some pregnancy photos of me and I'd said to her at the time you should come down here and do pregnancy photos there's nobody doing it like you would make a killing even if you came down once a month and set up in an office you could do this and I guess it was in the back of my head so when the baby swimming thing wasn't going to happen I contacted this friend and I said a bit creative if I sold the family car and got a community car to do my midwifery job, I'd have about 1,500 quid. What camera could I get with that money? 
So she sent me a link on eBay for a kit and I bought it. And then I just self-taught over a matter of weeks and months. I had friends who were pregnant and I was just really loved the idea of pregnancy photos. The pregnant woman is just so beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I was just, it was, it tied in with my midwifery. I just really wanted to do that. So that's what I did. I started a photography business on the side. I love that on the side business that becomes the thing. Did you find yeah. that you just, I think studying self-taught is sometimes such a challenge to fit around other things. And obviously you must've had a passion for it or a knack for it if it was something that you were willing yeah. to fit in. I don't really label art, whether that means anything, but I can remember being quite artistic before life took over and before needing a job took over, before business, the world took over. Quite a creative person. So I really loved the fact that I was picking up a camera and doing something creative again, I guess. I don't want to quite step away from your midwife career yet because I think there's some interesting things about that as well. You said about the teenage pregnancy service. What else maybe highlights or stands out as interesting stories from back in those days? I don't have particularly good stories about the midwifery other than the fact that I really loved what I was doing and I was really passionate about it. And I was really enjoying breaking the stereotype of young mums and teenage mums and supporting them. And I set up teenage pregnancy classes and was caseloading quite a few. So I felt a bit like a mother hen. And these girls had just been dealt a tough deal, made one accident, and it had such a profound effect on their lives. And they were being really judged for it. And in some cases, they were experiencing unconditional love for the first time by having a baby. And then also for some girls, it was the one thing. And if if they hadn't got pregnant and had a baby, they wouldn't have had the push to go and do something with their lives. Mm -hmm. They would have just continued floating. And almost the baby gave them what they needed to push them off to university to make something of themselves because they suddenly had something that they were responsible for. So I kept seeing lots of different situations where I was amazed and impressed by them. And I have heard back from a few of them over the years. They found me on social media, which is quite sweet. (laughs) And they tell me what an impact that I obviously had at the time. But they had an equal impact on me, really. And I really enjoyed that career. I enjoyed the teenage pregnancy stuff a lot. That's such a different story. Obviously, it's really hard to have a baby when you're not prepared. But that's such an amazing reversal of what we usually hear about teenage pregnancy. Yeah, and I was quite outspoken about it at the time. I'm sure I rattled a few feathers <laughs> trying to break the, the stereotype, really, and the stigma that they were facing. I, the, it was a new role it, in our trust. There, there hadn't been a role. It was, I was funded, and I was the first one to get that job and create it my own, really. So I did. I really enjoyed it up until a certain point. I was going to say, but then there's always, there's something that happens because you don't just go, oh, I'm loving my job. I shouldn't do this anymore. (laughs) Obviously, photography was part of it. But what else happened? Yeah. So at the time I had, because I was aware that I was a midwife and that we have rules, we have a code of conduct. There's certainly things that you can and you can't do that you're not allowed to do. So I was very aware of how was I supposed to position myself to the public? You can't use your midwifery registration to gain extra benefits unless it's in the world of what you're doing. So if I was running private midwife classes, that would be okay. But as it's a photographer, 
situation. It's got nothing to do really with being a midwife other than the fact that I'm photographing pregnant ladies. So the fact that although it was pregnant women, it was for personal gain because it's my business. I'm making money. I knew that what I couldn't do was be, for example, in the title of my business, the photography midwife or something like that. Right. So I, before I even launched it, I contacted the governing body. I contacted also a rep for the union that supports midwives to just check that I was doing everything correctly because I didn't want it to come back and bite me on the ass, basically. So they said, yeah, no, absolutely. You can't put that you're a registered midwife in any way and you can't use it in your titles and stuff to gain favor, I guess, off of your qualification. But if it comes up in a bio, you can mention that you're a qualified midwife. Okay. Because that's part of your history. That's absolutely fine. But you can't overtly do say that you're a midwife in your earning money. So I said, okay, that's fine. So I'd done all due diligence and checked everything. And then I'd started and obviously my colleagues knew what I was doing and it was all very positive and nice. And then I can remember sitting at one of my teenage pregnancy classes with the girls that I looked after and my phone rang and it was a midwife from the unit and said, we need to talk. We need you to come back to the unit. We need to have a meeting. I said, what about? And they said, conduct you and your photography. I was like, okay, are you there now? Because I couldn't wait till next Monday at 10 or something stupid. It suddenly becomes the big itch inside your head. I was like, are you there now? I'm on my way. So I dumped and run, went straight back into the hospital unit. And it was really strange because I was met by one midwife. Now these were all of the same grade as me, the same level. So Mm. there was no one above me in this meeting to tell me off in any way. So I was a little bit on the back first to, what do I need, what do you want to talk to me about? And there was three of them opposite me, with me. Now, I, my spidey senses are already going off, going, I should have someone here with me because this is feeling a little confrontational. Yeah. And they're like, okay, we want you to read the code of conduct and this point in the code of conduct, read it out to us. I can't remember what it was now. Something along the lines of will not use your registration, blah. So I read it out and I went, yeah. Now, they didn't know that I'd done my research. They didn't know that I was in touch with my rep and that I'd dotted all the I's and I crossed all the T's. They had no idea. And I thought, there's no need to tell them this. Like, let's just see where they go with this. And they said, what would you do if we're gravely concerned about you doing this? What if somebody comes for a pregnancy shoot and their bump is clearly too small or they talk to you about whether their baby is moving or not? What would you do? And I'm like, I'm not a midwife in that moment. I'm a photographer and I will tell them to go and talk to somebody straight away. And I'm not going to assess the size of somebody's pregnancy bump with my eyes. It's just not what I'm there for at that moment. I'm not going to judge. I'm not going to assess. But then what if something happens to that baby and you didn't act? Well, like that's so different to me walking and talking to somebody in Tesco in the supermarket. That's not how you size a pregnancy bump with your eyes. I, Sorry, you've lost me. I was a bit like, sorry, I've lost And they just continued. And it was quite interesting because I can remember just watching them as they're talking at me and thinking, I don't know where you're going with this. I don't understand why you're coming. It was quite confrontational. Why are you coming at me? So in the end, they said, what do you, what, so what do you think you're going to do from here? I said, I'm going to have to carefully consider my position here, which I don't think they were expecting me to say. (laughs) 
But I didn't know what else to say. I was really shocked. I felt sick. My heart was racing. Was there anything that they brought up that did give you pause as far as, like you said, you wouldn't assess a pregnancy bump size with your eyes in a photo shoot. But was there anything that kind of made you go, oh, that could be a sticky situation? Or was there nothing? Because you thought of everything. I'd thought of everything. Oh, that's how I felt. Anyway, so I was like, okay. So I just left. I just walked out of the room. Thanks, everybody, for your concerns. I need to consider my position. So I walked away, straight out to the car park, straight into my car, hyperventilating, crying at this point because it just all came out. I think I've been holding it in, obviously, as you do. And it was very uh, three against one. You were I was very, it. yeah, yeah. And it was hard. And I can remember that awful, just just feeling so unsupported that it was something beautiful that I was doing and that I'd been so diligent. And why behave like that? I don't, I just couldn't understand. And these are also three midwives that I thought I knew quite well and felt myself to be quite friendly with because you mm-hmm. become quite, quite a close knit team. And that clearly wasn't the case. So there was lots of different layers there. I rang my rep straight away on the phone who was furious. There should have been somebody there with you. You should have had an official meeting. So many rules were broken within that moment. So I calmed down. My immediate manager was actually off on sick because she had an operation. So I couldn't lean on her. I was a bit on my own really for a little bit. But when she came back, it was a fairly new head of the midwives who she said it had been brought to her attention. And with my manager, they decided that what was going to have to happen was there was going to have to be an investigation from the LSA, which is the uh, local supervising authority. Now, they're the people who investigate midwifery practice. They just make sure that everybody's doing what they should do. So that was huge. I was like, okay. I felt a little bit, bring it on. I've done everything. I've done everything I can do. Just, yeah, all right. If that means that I get to do what I want to do, then okay. So we had a meeting and I can remember before this person came in from the LSA, which is from a different part of the UK, he was traveling down to have this meeting. The head of Madrifery said, yeah, whatever. She was very blase about it all and just said, I think you've been very naive. I was like, okay, again, this is really supportive. Fantastic. Just keeping, I was keeping quiet, keeping counsel. We just think, I'm just going to watch and see how this plays out because I knew that I was in the right through all of this. Yeah. I'd done everything correctly. So it was a bit, I was feeling quite fascinated by it all as well as quite emotional. So I waited and the meeting started and I had to get out all of my publications, all of my leaflets and everything that I was using. And I did, I presented what I was doing and what I wanted to do and held it out for this woman to review it all. And it was 10 minutes, if that, and she just stood up, shook my hand and said, this is absolutely beautiful. Best of luck to you. I was like, okay. Yeah. Yeah, obviously you were really emotional about it privately, but it seems like you kept your head and cool. you were right. Cool, a cucumber. Yeah, very much. My immediate manager knew that I was in the right as well, so that was okay. And then I decided, I was like, I don't know who I know here. I don't know people or the people that I really genuinely loved my colleagues. I loved my job. I loved everybody so much and I put so much into that situation. It was dead to me from that minute on, really. So... I put my notice in. I was gone within a couple of weeks without so much as a thank you card and went back to the hospital and the trust where I trained. Mm. And I was welcomed with open arms, a bunch of women who were so excited about what I was doing on the side. I ended up decorating the whole unit in 30 massive pieces of wall art, local midwives and mums. 
they couldn't have been more supportive of my job. And when I eventually left, about a year after opening my first studio, just such a lovely goodbye from everybody. It was completely different to how that first leaving happened. I'm amazed that you were opening a studio while all this is going oh, on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It just got out of hand. You know how it is. Yeah. So I this had all happened maybe, I want to say 2008, 2009, something like that. And so 2010 is when I opened my first studio and I was still working a couple of shifts at the hospital because I couldn't quite financially afford having opened the studio to leave such a solid paycheck because we just didn't know how it was going to work. So for that first year, I did a couple of shifts in the hospital and then every other day of the week was at the studio. And were you working with so, other people at that point? Because I know on your, yeah. I know now you have a team. Well, right now I'm my beloved team, Rachel, who's still with me, still does all of my retouching. And she's been with me since the very beginning, actually. And I employed her before I employed myself. So I managed to grab the people that I wanted and just have the studio functioning for about a year. And then was it was time. I was able to. A few different things happened all at once within the same month. It was September of that year. My, my eldest, she started school. So mm. the three or four hundred pound a month childcare bill stopped and we had a fixed rate. We had a fixed rate mortgage at the time mm-hmm. and the deal ended and actually our mortgage halved at the time. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it never, nice when that happens. <laughs> never works the other way these days, does it? But back then halved. So. Those two things put together was probably quite a big chunk of what I was taking home from the Twiffery. But we decided that it was now safe to take that step. So we did. I said goodbye to my midwifery career about a year after I opened the studio. Congratulations on that. Thank I don't you. think that happened. Does, that doesn't happen quite like that most of the time. No. Like- I felt that I needed to be quite sensible because I got a husband who also had a salaried job, but I had a child, we had a mortgage. You can't just or I didn't feel like safe enough to just jump until it was ready, until it was time. Needed to be sensible about it. So you began with pregnancy photos, but you've become famous for boudoir photos. <laughs> boudoir. Well, I love how you put a prey a boudoir. I have to say boudoir. I can't say it. I don't know. I don't know how I normally say it. I will say in the last few in the last few months, the last year, we've we've still got to use the word boudoir because a lot of people don't realise what it is unless we say that. So in a lot of our marketing, we still have to use the word boudoir. And that's what people are searching for as well. So I accept that. But we're definitely moving into the empowerment space and we're liking the empowerment shoots. I think boudoir says that you've got to get naked. See, I didn't think that. I definitely thought like sexy, but I was intrigued Mm. when I went on your website because that's one of the things that I was really excited about was, okay, great. You can take pictures of somebody feeling sexy, looking sexy, whatever. But the concept of it really being about empowerment is so Mm. much more interesting to me because my first thought, I guess, when I hear boudoir photography is I'm doing it for someone else. You know, I am, I'm getting into the sexy pose or doing this thing in sexy underwear, whatever it is to give as a gift for my partner for whatever. Mm -hmm. But when I read empowerment, it's like, I'm doing this to feel comfortable about my body or it can just be, it doesn't have to be like you said. Which is why I think, yeah, which is why I think we have morphed from being boudoir photographers to being empowerment photographers, because that was happening time and time again, that we were 
not reminding women, but also positioning ourselves that this is for you. So even when somebody would, it's funny because a lot of women really want to do a shoot like that, but they feel like they need an excuse to do it. So his birthday coming up or their wedding day or the gift thing gives them a reason to do it. So if we take that reason away and say, you're doing this because you want to do it. So when they say, oh, I've got a shoot, I want to shoot, it's his 50th coming up. So it's the ideal opportunity to, we often just go, well, stop. No, <laughs> this shoot is for you. And he's just like an extra bonus. He's just good for him. He's going to get something out of this too. But primarily, you want to do this for you. And we just shift that whole narrative when we're first talking, and which is lovely, really nice. And I think it does make it more powerful. So how did you get into that space to begin with? Did somebody approach you and say, this is what I'm looking for or what happened? The usual thing of where I don't really say no too much. That's something I've learned over the years. Always say yes. So we were looking for, you can basically purchase leads, which is people that are keen to have your service. So you can purchase leads within the photography world. And I wanted to purchase leads, which is pregnant women. I needed to find out where I could find pregnant women. Okay. Mm. And I could then apply my service at them. So I was at a big photography exhibition at the NEC and we're walking around looking for the company that sells these leads. So we found the company and we're talking and we're signing up and yeah, that's great. This guy takes me on the side and says, do you do boudoir? And I said, yeah. <laughs> of course I do. We, we didn't at all. So the building that I'd taken on as a studio, I had it had three floors. So we were inhabiting the bottom floor, but the first and the second floor were derelict. We were just using them for storage. They were like bare boards, just a mess up there. Builders rubble. They were a stain. Mm. So I just said, yeah, of course we do. He said, oh, we need to talk. So after this event, we spoke to them and we were primarily just getting the leads for the pregnancy. And they were saying, we also do them for makeover shoots if you want them for that. And we were like, we could do makeover shoots. We could also do boudoir. So I contacted a local lady who did interior design. She had a shop nearby. I let her decorate the dressing room in exchange for leaving her cards and a bit of cash. So she did the decorated the dressing room. I went to Argos, bought a chandelier. Then we had a makeup artist friend who we photographed her in her knickers. And that was our boudoir portfolio. So within two weeks, we weren't lying. <laughs> we did do boudoir. Yes, absolutely. And around that time, it was almost the identical time, we got contacted by a rep from Groupon. Oh, yeah. And she came in and said, do you want to do a deal with Groupon? And I said, well, yeah, but I'm really worried about selling loads of shoots and not being able to sell photos. How about, because they had to do, you have to give away several. And I was really worried about that because knowing that people would just come in, people already used to come in and take the free photo and walk off. And I thought at any kind of volume, that's quite dangerous for a business. And you've heard stories of people just ruining their business. So I said, but what about if, yes, there's six photos included, but what about if they were all of the same picture, same image? Right. She said, yeah, we could do that. So we did. And we sold hundreds. So I was employing a team of three or four photographers, make parts. We were doing 20, 30 shoots a week, really high volume, high octane, big team. It was good fun, really good fun. But it meant we fast tracked into 
what was, we fast-tracked all kinds of people, all kinds of scenarios. It just, it was like business on steroids. And being, this is all self-taught in the world of business. So I was literally learning as I was rolling with it. So it was quite full on. And yeah, it was very quick after we started doing the boudoir that we started to be in the sales room and getting responses from women really emotional ones and people going, oh my God, you can't believe what this has done for me. This is how I feel now. And you've made a big difference in my life. And we weren't expecting it. Just another genre of photography to me. And it just resonated, I guess, as a woman. I was like, oh my God, oh my God, we're actually making an impact here on women. So it just got quite deep quite quickly. It feels like photography filled a hole that you were looking for when you were doing midwifery. Mm -hmm. And then there probably was that hole of helping people when you yeah. weren't doing that anymore, even though, like you said, it was another genre of photography. You like taking photos. Yeah. But then all of a sudden to be able to say, I've got a little bit of that back. That must have felt yeah. really good. I, it's really interesting. I was literally I was public speaking about this just a couple of years ago. And someone said to me, the word midwife means with woman. You're still with women. You've not really changed what you're doing you're still helping women in some way or another and yeah I would say what first started is wow this is great we're going to make some money at this quickly mm -hmm. became and that's the cynical part of it the businesswoman part of it quickly turned into my god this is my calling this is what I want to do and I would I think the big thing is someone says if you were to win the lottery tomorrow would you continue what you do and I was yeah 100% I'd just do it bigger and better Wow. That is, I think that's really saying something because I think the majority of us, probably me included, I'm not sure. I probably would still be talking to people, but just Who's maybe, not? I don't know, maybe just <laughs> I'd pay somebody to edit the podcast. Yeah. See? <laughs> but I, yeah, I do think that is a real, a real thing because if you can do whatever you want and money's no object, it is very different than I'm doing this to make a living and I happen to like it. Agreed. You also mentioned public speaking. You are president. Uh, I'm not going to say the right no, title, no, but no, 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 you're on a committee. Wait, tell me yeah, what you do with it. <laughs> so there's an institute with, it's the longest running institute in the UK. It's called the British Institute of Professional Photographers. Wonderful institute. And it's really lovely in the fact that you're there supporting photographers within the industry, helping develop photographers within the industry, and also hopefully helping younger photographers coming into the industry as people go off the other end. So we kind of need to, we need to be supporting and helping people to develop their careers and also make their own mark so that they don't get sucked up into another career because their photography career didn't work. So mm -hmm. I, I feel quite, I run a business clinic within there as well to, if anything, just to try and help professional photographers remain professional photographers. It's a tough industry. It's getting tougher every day. So I'm quite proud of that. Not quite very proud of that. I'm on the board of directors more recently in the last year chair, which brings its own responsibilities and heavy stresses. Yeah. You're on there for a certain fixed term and you hope to make your mark while you're doing it. You actually have on your website that you help women feel seen, feel empowered, and then empowered and full of self-love. But it sounds like that's just a gift you're giving a lot of people because it sounds like that's coming through what you're doing yeah, it's with just young photographers. To yeah, it's wanting to 
I have a very strong sense of what's right and wrong, really. Mm-hmm. And if you can nurture and make your mark, then what are people going to write about you after you've gone? You just want to just know that you've done your best by the people that are around you. And I think that's personally and professionally. I think that's what drives me a lot of the times because I really care about what people say about me. <laughs> I really, I, it's one of my struggles is that, I, yeah, I feel quite intensely when there are situations. I guess I've created a world which is just so full of positivity that I don't see any negativity very often other than what I'm watching on the telly. Or reading in the papers, which is why I do neither. I'm in a I'm in a happy bubble, or try to be. So it can get a bit crazy when the pressure kicks in. Yeah, it was funny because I was reading on your website as well. You said something about that the NHS created a tough shell, but if somebody's mean, you get a little lip wobbly. And I thought of myself because I was like, I like to just surround myself with positivity because yeah, it's I cope very well. It's, it, it is interesting. So I'll bring into the conversation now that I was diagnosed with autism last year. And one of the, one of the other things that was, I think that wasn't huge enough news as it was and quite an interesting part of what was a crazy year. Also something called rejection sensitivity dysphoria, RSD, which is very common amongst people in the autistic spectrum mm-hmm. in the world, is that I literally can't deal with rejection in any way. And look, I'm laughing. I use humor, by the way. And it's been very interesting when I look back over the fact that I have slowly, over many years, morphed a world where I'm the boss. Nobody tells me what to do. I, my business is of such a high level now. So it's in the luxury space. So we're expensive. And I mm-hmm. like that. So it means that we have the wonderful clients. It means that to give such a stellar experience and charge the money that we do, the experience has to be perfect because all the loopholes are tightened up over years. It's been a long process, but a very deliberate one. So those little things that people would complain about fixed it. Those kind of loopholes that somebody would exploit to get something for gain closed it. I just worked very hard, very systematically over many years to finally be in a bubble where we don't have complaints. We don't have unhappy clients. Everybody is bowled over. So you, when I got that diagnosis last year, I was like, oh, that's really interesting. So I don't get rejected. That's really clever that I've subconsciously done that even without having a label put to myself. It's got me to where I am today and why I don't. So in personal, I've had some personal issues recently in relationships, not my marriage, obviously, but had some other family issues that I just can't I can't deal with I switch off I it's self-preservation and it's more than your normal Mm self-preservation where mm -hmm. somebody just shuts down and just I seriously shut down and I cannot deal so it's been lovely to be able to be kind to myself over the last few months as that's got worse and just be a little kinder to myself and go why okay okay I can learn to live with that allow for it really in day-to-day things I think it's really interesting as well, just as we are more aware of neurodivergency and Mm. different, I don't know, subcategories of, because people have still an image of what autism is or have an image of what ADHD is or have an, and I think there's a lot of women who are in their 40s and 50s and beyond 
finding out because now we know what these things are, but it's really hard to get diagnosed. So I don't want to go on a huge tangent, but I am really That's curious. That's a whole other podcast, isn't it? I was going to say, this could be part <laughs> two, but I am really curious how you ended up with the diagnosis because I think it's hard enough to get diagnosed with something that's literally on your body that people can see. But yeah. to say, I'm in my 40s and I think maybe something's going on or... Where did that come from? It's amazing. My my brother was diagnosed in adulthood, mm-hmm. so very aware, and it's quite obvious with him. So it was never a surprise. Um, with me, less obvious, I guess. But I, we used to joke about saying that the force is strong in our family, as my husband would say, <laughs> because we have... An, I know that I caught myself in the past... I call it getting rari. If I talk about something I'm really passionate in, I can really run with it and go rah. And I was aware of that. It used to make me a bit uncomfortable at times when I caught myself doing it. I'd be a bit embarrassed. So I always joked and said, maybe there was an element of that. I used to say things like really flippantly, I've probably got a touch of it. The awful phrase, Mm. I've got a touch of it, but I've harnessed it. I've harnessed the good in it. I've harnessed the power. That's super powered me to... In my midwifery quick career, I fast-tracked to a high grade and took on the teenage pregnancy. I was two, maybe two years post-qualified when I got that. No messing around. And right. Whenever I get my teeth into something, I'm going to do it. And I drive my husband to distraction. At the minute I decide I need a new car, that's all I think about until the car's on the driveway. It's like an itch. I can't focus. And sometimes I make bad decisions sometimes just to stop the itch. Yeah. So... That kind of falling down a rabbit hole phrase I use quite a lot. So I had an idea that maybe, but I didn't really think too much about it because it didn't really affect me. And then last year, I starting to see signs of that in my youngest daughter. So I bought a book regarding girls with autism just to have a read up in it to see, do I need to take her down that path of diagnosis? Will it help her or hinder her? I just didn't know. I wasn't sure. I just had this, again, my spidey senses as I talk. And I read the book in one day and just went, yeah, that's me. Right. <laughs> Holy what? And again, because then I fell down a rabbit hole a bit, couldn't let it go. I was just getting obsessed with finding everything out about autism and how it affects women and late diagnosis, which is really common and masking. And I'd also been experiencing really high levels of burnout. So why am I feeling so burnt out? Oh my God. So it could be masking. It might not just be business stress or being a mum or all of my spinning plate. I might be burning out for an entirely different reason here. I'm actually feeling unwell. At times I would burn out to the point where I'd say to my husband, I'm scared. I'm scared I'm about to say the elastic band's going to snap. Right. Things would get so stressful for me that no one else would recognize or know about because I'm too busy jazz handing. But that's what I called it, jazz handing. I'm familiar with jazz handing. Yeah, jazz handing. Yeah, no, everything's fine. I'm running a really positive business. Everybody's really positive and it's all so lovely. And then I'm going home and dying at night. And I, I'd repetitively started over those few months of self-care, eating dinner and going straight to bed. Mm-hmm. So I was working and doing amazing things publicly, but my private life was just really burnt out and just walking through treacle was another phrase I used to use a lot. Because there's a lot of stress that comes with running a business. It's as much as there's lots of amazing things happen, you get the negatives as well, don't you, in business? So, yeah, it was a lot on my shoulders. And, yeah, I decided that this could possibly be it. And I booked a psychologist. I just mm-hmm. got straight on with it. Booked someone, did the assessment. And 
it was a very quick, yeah, yeah, you're autistic. I was like, oh my God, wow, who yeah. knew? And everyone around me went, yeah, we knew. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. I think the other thing is that what we know, and you mentioned a couple of times in women, you researched it in women, what mm. we know so much about symptoms of everything is from a male perspective. We don't hear what it's how things present themselves in women, and it's often very different. And masking, because I know. we mask like ninjas. We, I was researching on this, obviously, <laughs> and my new special interest at the time was that from six months old, girls are masking from six months of age. There's been moments in the last year since diagnosis of me going, who the hell am I? Is that the real me or is that the masked me? That will I ever unmask? I don't know. Is the unmasked Joe? Who am I? That kind of thing. I'm just learning to not get too caught up on that because I've got a job to do and I've got a family to raise and I'm essentially happy. So I'm not going to dig too deep into getting caught up in that, but it is interesting. And it's just, it's allowed me to be a lot kinder to myself. That's what, that was my next question is getting a diagnosis. Do you feel like, I'm sure it hasn't changed that much about your life other than, or do you feel like it's changed that much about your life or is it just that you can be kinder and recognize what you're doing sometimes? Yeah, just kinder. And it's been eye-opening. There are certain people around me who I think, but I can't dig because the RSD, they don't believe in autism. You know, so that's thrown up a few issues there from people quite close to me. But essentially my family, my husband, my close friend and some relatives, obviously my brother, I told him recently, it's it's wholly a positive thing. It really is. But it has, it's taught me a few things about relationships. It's taught me that a bit of a pat on the back, really. It's going to like what I've created. Yeah. Supercharged by neurodivergence. Made it work. I've made it happen. And. Where would I be today if I wasn't autistic? Who knows? Yeah. I think, I think the world of neurodivergence is, how to say this? I think that the word spectrum is used a lot, for example, with autism. But yeah. our minds are such an interesting spectrum that I think mm. the more we learn, the more we'll find out there isn't that much that's quote unquote normal. And that sometimes what makes people interest well obviously what makes people interesting but also their superpowers come from this place that might be at once upon a time considered the worst word but like a disability yeah it's it just all fit i don't know any different i've always exactly. been the way that i am <laughs> exactly so of course it has caused me to look back and there are definitely situations throughout childhood and teenage years that you've gone oh yeah wow i didn't know <laughs> and maybe i was better off not knowing Who knows? And I've still not gone down the path of sorting my daughter out yet because I'm too busy dealing with me. I'm figuring me out, but I'm not feeling the urge to label myself or her really yet. Yeah. Who knows? Who knows? Depends what issues come up really. Thanks for sharing it with us because I do think it's really interesting for women to know a bit more about the things that, like I say, haven't been, we haven't been a focus of for a long time. It's frustrating. The, the women that I've read about that have been on years and years of antidepressants and diagnosis of bipolar and depression and are now obviously 
tripping into perimenopause and menopause, which is part of my journey over the last couple of years. Am I, is it perimenopause? Let me try HRT. Am I perimenopausal? All of these symptoms, bellowing out. Here's autism. I'm yeah. now not on HRT. I was for a while because I was completely convinced that it was that. It's just, it's absolutely fascinating sort of web of discovery, really. And I just feel that there are a lot of women out there who are clearly struggling where mainstream medical won't consider because yeah. we're masking it so well. We are spinning those plates like motherfuckers. We're doing it. And until we snap that elastic band that I was so frightened of when I would be at my darkest and say to my husband, I think I'm going to wake up in a mental hospital tomorrow. Mm-hmm. You know, what's, I feel like something's about to snap. I am at the edge of something. I don't know what to do. Help me. And he'd just be looking at me. I don't know how to help you. Yeah. So I'm really worried that I'm about to go ping. And the next thing I'm going to be aware of is me waking up somewhere. That's, that is how far it was pushing me that I was just losing the state of my brain. And it was just all burnout. Yeah. It's a lot, isn't it? It's, it's a lot. No, I just, a- I just feel what you're saying. Having talked to so many women and having, of course, my own all of these situations, whether it's masking or perimenopausal symptoms or all yeah. of these other things. It's <laughs> all in the cloud. Where am I on this? Is this journey because of this or is this problem because of this? Or and so tough. It's, it's so really tough. tough. So for about 12 years, I had really bad IBS symptoms. And that was to do with, I thought it was to just do with IBS. I've got IBS. Really bad symptoms. Absolutely awful. Then I started to get really bad skin symptoms, having had no acne as a teenager, I suddenly had really problematic skin. This went on to be years. So at some point, the GPs start putting me on antibiotics for it. So I'm taking Mm. course after course of antibiotics for really problematic cystic acne that would stop me from talking properly. And when you've got to like do training or stand up on a stage and talk, that it really affects you. If you think back to my RSD and me having to impress people and not, it was all tied up and I was finding it, not knowing I'm autistic. I'm standing up public speaking, (laughs) another spinning play. And I'm just like, oh, we've got to fix my skin. So the doctor have got, what, eight minutes with you? Mm. Just throw another course of antibiotics at her. And I'm like, I can't keep doing this. And I got to about my dozen, a dozen courses under my belt, like at least one or two courses a year at one point. And the IBS is getting worse and worse. And a lot of autistic people have IPS issues because the anxiety, the gut, it's all connected, yeah? So I'm like, oh my God, I'm a mess. I'm an absolute mess. HRT, don't know. Then I get my diagnosis. I see the connection between autism and IBS. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I then go and pay for a private GP because you can't get a GP appointment for love or money at nice. the end of last year. Yeah, I pay for a private GP. What are the odds of me walking into that room and finding that she's a gut specialist GP. Hello, universe. Oh, my God. And she said, I, I actually, I said to her, I said, I think maybe I've been researching. Do I need some kind of probiotic? Because I look, all, look at my list. I showed her a long list of all my prescriptions. So I managed to get them off my NHS app. She said, oh, my God. Does your doctor's surgery know how many courses you've had in this short amount of time over a few years? I said, no. She said, I think you should tell them. Because again, it's not the GP's fault because they're dealing with what's presenting to them. They don't have time to go and look back over the last few years. So people weren't putting two and two together. She said, yeah, do this. 
go and take these probiotics, super expensive, go and take those. I was cured in four days. Yeah, that, that's what I meant even when I was just saying, how did you end up with this autism diagnosis? Because it's something like that. It's so easy to diagnose when they see you've had all these antibiotics, but mm. it's about somebody taking the time to go back and do that. Or You just need time. You just need time yeah. with somebody who knows what they're talking about to look at everything and say, and do you know what? It's fair play to the NHS. It's amazing. And I support it and I love it. And I'm very passionate about the NHS, even mm. though I no longer work there. It's just, I wasn't getting the answers that I needed. At no point did anybody look at my history and go, oh, could she be neurodivergent? Could this be the reason why HRT, et cetera, et cetera, late diagnosis? That was never going to step into their brain because they're just being presented with whatever at the time. They just deal with the symptoms in front of them. Totally understand that. But this more recent one with those antibiotics and taking a probiotic and just literally... Four days. I was researching. They said, you'll see a result in three to four days. That was done. a couple of months ago. Done. One and done. Just convert. after 12 years of debilitating the symptoms because somebody sat there and looked back over my history. And I understand that not everybody is in a position, sadly, to be able to get that level of care. I feel like we are getting better about standing up for ourselves, but I hope that does inspire people to do their own research because we have to at this point. We have to, and I talk very freely about it with women as well. And I know I've had two or three clients that have gone, oh, you know, about things. And I just think that's wonderful. That's women are for what this is what we do is we support each other and we create a space here that a lot of our shoots are not just taking photos. There's a lot of connection going on. There's a lot of putting the world to rights. There's a lot of being seen and being heard, which is super important for any woman, obviously. And I, do you know what? I'd slap myself, actually, for saying woman because I'm very aware that men need this too. I just happen to have chosen the woman's space. I feel like a lot of times I'm explaining why I've chosen the women's space. And I think yeah. I'm 100% supportive across gender identity in general. And I think I can say men need emotional support. I think there's a broad range of how people are identifying now. And I don't want to say I only believe in the power of women, but I do also think that there are a lot of issues that we've seen time and time again with women that it's worth talking about and supporting Absolutely. each other. Yeah, which is why I've chosen the space that I have. As far as other women who, or anyone who's listening, who might have that itch or there's something else they want to be doing, and maybe they are a little bit safe or feeling a little bit nervous, do you have any advice? It's a difficult one because we wear so many hats and we have so many responsibilities, don't we? So there were times when I wanted to jump and make a change. There still is. But you have responsibilities. You can't just jump. You can't just flip the envelope you just can't because you've got certain things but it's for me it's always been about not giving up though not saying I can't and that's the end of it it's like I can't but how right it makes a difference I can't right now (laughs) but how can I work toward making it yes precisely so I'm going to work a 70 hour week I'm gonna not have maternity leave with my second child and have her in a bassinet behind reception desk I used to book clients in whilst breastfeeding. So the baby would be on the desk in front with the keyboard on her back as the clients would come down to book. And they go, you know, she's just having a meal. Don't mind her. Don't worry. (laughs) Carry on. Because 
You just have to. I had this conversation with Rachel, who works with me and has always worked with me. So she's seen my 16-year-old since she was two. She watched me through my pregnancy with my youngest and also not having maternity leave and turning up at the studio with a baby after week two. And she became fabric of the building, this newborn. And she's recently become a mum, but he's just had his third birthday. And she's like, oh my God, she's like, I don't know how you did it. How did you used to have a baby in the building? And we just worked around her and you never looked stressed. You just looked like you were just doing it. And I said, well, you're a mum now. We just do because we have to. It's that kind of mentality. I haven't really got a choice. So how am I going to make it work? I don't say, oh, well, I can't. That's not a thing I can do. To be fair, since the diagnosis of autism, it has given me a little bit of an opportunity to say no to things, which is quite nice, actually. I'm like, no, I can't do that. It makes me uncomfortable. And now I know why. I give myself a break. But I think that... Again, that's one of the things that it shouldn't take a diagnosis of autism no. to say no, to say I'm yeah. uncomfortable. And yeah, I yeah. hope that we're all learning that. You know, that I like, think so. No matter who you are, if you're uncomfortable with something or if it's just too much, sometimes we just have to say no. Yeah. It is a real problem for me, but I am really yeah. working on it. I know for a long time I used to say my mantra was say yes to everything. Because I was told it by some business coach at some point, always say yes to every opportunity, always say yes. If you don't want to do it, just quote high. <laughs> so you don't end up doing it, but you still said yeah. Yes. And do you know what? In the last couple of years, even before diagnosis, it's learning when to say no was it is interesting, more though, powerful. Because your answer to why did you get into boudoir photography was... I said yeah. I said yes. I so, know. Sometimes it, it's such a hard balance. Um, yeah, How do you make that call as to what's a good yes and yeah. a bad yes? Don't know. Yeah. I couldn't tell you. But it's the comfort level, I think. Mm -hmm. If it's nails on a chalkboard, don't say yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just no. I am getting better at that. And that leads us back to that, what you're going to change this year. Yeah. It's that work-life balance. I'm going to learn to say no and just be a little more mindful. That buzzword, mindful. As you've looped back to the new year, I do want to ask you if you brought a quote for me today. Yeah. So if we ignore the yes, no thing, <laughs> okay? So I do still feel that people need to be brave and make it happen and make a way, okay? So that's, although the yes, no thing is quite a bit problematic for people and some people can't and probably shouldn't just say yes to everything. My favorite phrase in the last few years has been knitting the parachute on the way down. Because you can really get held back by taking leaps and doing things because either you've never done it before mm -hmm. or you're not confident enough or brave enough or that imposter syndrome tells you're not good enough. All of those things that hold us back. The number of times that I've said yes to things and then I've just learned how to do it really quickly. It led you to where you are now. Yeah, I just made another skill and I don't regret any of it. I don't look back and regret anything at all. So it's got me to do what I love and I don't have to book annual leave a year ahead like I did in the NHS. <laughs> I have that freedom, which is good. But yeah, knitting the parachute on the way down is a good phrase. If you don't so, have to do it, go and learn how to do it. <laughs> trust me. I think that's my <laughs> mantra. <laughs> it helps that I love to learn new things. Yeah, that probably helps. <laughs> so I will definitely be checking back in with you to find out how your year's gone. <laughs> oh no, the pressure. <laughs>
I know. I'm going to have to put it in my diary so I don't forget now that I've put the pressure on. But I will make sure that your website is in the show notes. But is there anything else that you want to share with listeners? Not really. Just come join us and be with us. And I don't believe that there's a woman on the planet who doesn't want to feel better about herself. We change lives every day. I know that for sure. And I'm super, super proud of that. So yeah, it's just the more that people know about what we do within our space. We have ladies travel from across the UK now and even flying in from abroad. So something that I don't want to say as simple as a photograph or as simple as a photography shoot, because I know it's not simple, but could really make someone's confidence levels change and change people's lives. It has a profound impact. And the number of times that we have people who will leave us a review So if you go to some of our socials, on one of our Facebook pages, there's a few in the review section where they say, there's a long paragraph of how amazing that they're feeling. And then at the end they say, and I can't wait to see the photos. It just says it all. It really does. That we've had that impact on them just by them either stepping out of their comfort zone, because you don't have to be in lingerie. You could just be in jeans and a vest top. It's fine. So that's action, the action of taking action, doing something for yourself, putting yourself first. We're so low on the list of priorities as women. There's usually five or six things ahead of us. So that taking action and then being seen, then being heard, and then being able to express yourself and actually maybe push the envelope a little bit and do something a little bit more than you were expecting and being brave. All of that is... It's nothing to do with the photos, really. It's amazing. I'd sing on the cake, which is the photo evidence. And yeah, that's the world that we've created. So I'm super proud of that. As you should be. Thank you. Thank you, Joanna Elizabeth. Joe. it's been so lovely to speak with you. You too. Thanks for listening to me wittering on. (laughs) I very much enjoyed it. (laughs) Good. And I think all of the listeners will as well. So thank you so much. (laughs) All the best in 2023. Thank you, lovely. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, tell a friend, follow us on Instagram and sign up for the second chapter newsletter. The second chapter is brought to you by Slackline Productions, a production company dedicated to redressing the balance of women's stories being told and who's telling them with a specific focus on women 35 plus. You can find us at thesecondchapterpodcast.com and slacklineproductions.co.uk. Thanks again.